Well, good morning, church. It's, it's good to see all of you here this morning, and it's uh, good to be here. Now, I, I can't believe that it's already June. Um, the school year went really fast for me this year. Um, now, many of you know I'm a high school science teacher by day and a pastor by night, but uh, actually, I'm probably a high school science teacher by day and a high school science teacher by night also, and then a pastor by midnight or something. But um, anyways, uh, one of the cool things is by the time summer rolls around, I have a lot less on my plate. It gives me a much larger capacity, and so I'm excited that I can be a lot more uh, present here. Um, so like Pastor Matt said, we're going to go through a new sermon series. I'm kick-starting that off for us, and um, I will actually be preaching every Sunday for the month of June just to really get us going. And the goal is to give Matt some rest and to be able to support him as well. So here's our goal for this summer. We're just going to jump right into it. Um, Our goal is to experience Christ and his transforming grace through the regular habits of our life, through the daily things that we do. And I'll say that one more time because this is going to be kind of the mantra for our next Uh, 15 or 16 weeks as we meet here. Our goal is to experience Christ and his transforming grace through the regular habits of our life. Now, historically, there's been a lot of ways to kind of describe uh, this. There's um, terms like spiritual disciplines. Maybe you're familiar with that. Um, Sometimes you hear words like the practices or um, in the Reformed tradition, a lot of times you hear the means of grace um, but that's kind of what we're getting at here um, with the, the sermon series. Um, now, we have chosen specifically to use this term habit. And the reason why we've chosen that term is because we want to focus on the ways that we can regularly, regularly meet with Jesus day in and day out in our life. And the point of that is um, if we are really compelled by the gospel, if we really love Jesus, uh, then it follows that we will try to find ways in the the normal rhythm of our life to meet with him. This is a pretty intuitive idea, I think, I I think when we think about that. When we love someone, we care for someone, a spouse or a best friend um, or a um, neighbor, we prioritize meeting with them regularly, right? So we set aside time so that we can be in their presence. We set aside time so that we can hear how they're doing, what their thoughts are, and to know them. And so the goal here is that we would find ways in our life to meet with Jesus and to experience him. So coming back to this idea of habits, um, there's this unbreakable link between the things that we value and love and the things that we regularly give our lives to. Or put another way, um, you love what you give your time to, um, and uh, you love what you can't do without, right? So a few weeks ago, I was kind of thinking about this idea. Um, I was, was thinking about this idea about the connection between habits and our um, loves, and uh, I ended up watching this episode of Brain Games. Has anyone seen that, that TV show, Brain Games? Okay, a couple of you, maybe not as nerdy as I am. But, uh, so the whole, the whole goal of brain games is to kind of show current brain science through uh, games and through experiments and to communicate these ideas in kind of an accessible 
way to people. So one of the goals of um, this episode was to develop an experiment that I think actually really illuminated this idea that we're talking about this morning. So here's how the experiment goes. You have the producers, and they are posing as scientists. I'm not sure if any of them are scientists, but they're at least posing as scientists. And what they do is they gather together a group of people that they've hired as participants, and they tell these participants that they're going to be a part of a special, confidential focus group. And part of this confidential focus group is that they commit to not using their cell phones whatsoever during the confidential focus group, or they, uh, they forfeit their, their money, their participant money. The whole idea is so that the participants think that they're not leaking any important information, right? Um, so the participants are organized around this really big table, and the scientists confiscate their phones, and they place them up on this little display, and the participants are just kind of glaring at their phones across from them, right? And here's where things get really interesting. So we have um, the scientists come in, they will in this little TV cart, and um, they attempt to show a video. It's supposed to be some sort of video that the focus group's supposed to give feedback on. But it doesn't work. The TV uh, is not turning on like planned. And so what the scientists do is, on their way out, say, we're going to go get a cable, or we're going to go get a power cord, or something like that. On their way out, they say, um, absolutely no cell phones. Don't use your cell phone, or you're going to violate our agreement. And then they walk out. So they kind of leave them hanging, and you can kind of see where this is going already, right? Um, they've kind of placed a temptation there. So what the participants don't know is these scientists um, have walked outside the room, and they stand behind a one-way mirror, and they just observe the people in the room. Um, and so they're just waiting to see if someone's going to crack. Um, and after about five or ten minutes, most haven't, surprisingly. There is one guy who gets up and kind of breaks code and looks at his phone, because he hears that he got a text, but most people haven't. This is where the, the, the scientists really pull out the big guns. So what they do is, if you remember, they signed a waiver on their way, and one of the things that they had to leave as bits of information was their cell phone numbers. So the scientists start systematically calling and texting each of the people within the room, and you can start to see the anticipation build, right? People cannot stay still. And then finally, it, the can of worms opens, right? One person walks over, grabs their phone, then the next, and the next. And it turns out that 80% of all the participants in the room walk across uh, the room and, and grab their phone. Cannot uh, resist. And, and it gets so bad that, in fact, some people just go on to, like, start watching YouTube videos. They start calling and um, making their own phone calls, writing their own emails. Um, so it just really unravels after that point. Um, but I, I think it's really illuminating for us. Um, now, I don't know if you guys can relate th with this, but I, I think I really personally uh, can. Smartphones have really become kind of a fixture in American life. Um, in fact, I was just reading that roughly 70% of all Americans have a smartphone, and they regularly use a smartphone in their life which is pretty phenomenal when you consider that the iPhone has only been out since 2007. So we're talking within roughly 10 years, 70% of Americans having uh, this technology. Pretty crazy, but here's what's actually more staggering than that. It's actually the data that's arising around people's habits 
their cell phone habits. So there was a big study done by this company called Shurion. They're a tech company and an insurance company, and they were really interested in uh, people's cell phone use. And so they found, as they looked at um, a number of participants, that um, roughly, um, that the, the participants looked at their cell phones roughly every 12 minutes for a total of 80 times per day. Some participants actually looked at their cell phone for up to 300 times in a single day. Um, seven out of 10 users said that they had to sleep within arm's reach of their phone. That actually is 88% for millennials, so very, very high. Roughly nine out of 10 millennials sleep within arm's reach of their phone. Um, and 31% of people feel regular anxiety when separated from their phone for any amount of time. So obviously we have uh, this problem, and I think I've been um, you know, participating in that problem as, as well. Um, many times I start my day with my cell phone, I end my day with my cell phone. It's kind of this repeated habit or pattern in my life. But the question is, why? Like, why are we so addicted to our cell phones? Why are we so connected to them? Um, there, I think, is some obvious reasons, right? Cell phones are obviously really helpful. Um, they give us communication. We have things like maps and pictures and weather and, and so on. As Christians, there's also lots of beneficial ways to use them, right? We can text people to encourage them. We can listen to Pastor Matt's sermons if we miss Sunday. We can listen to music. Um, there's, there's lots of um, helpful ways that we can use our phone. But I don't really think that that's descriptive of the addictive behavior, the anxiety being separated from your phone, the need to sleep next to it. I think there's something deeper going on there. And I, I think what's really happening is that there's worship happening. I think that seems to be the only explanation for why there's such a, a need and such an impulse to be connected um, to our cell phones. It's, it's worship. And the reason I believe this is if we... Um, look at the things we consistently give ourselves to, they reveal what we worship. So if you're following along, you have your little um, sermon note outline with you. This is our first point here. Our habits reveal what we worship. Remember, we love what we give our time to, and we love what we can't do without. So what are we worshiping with our cell phones? Well, I would argue that it's actually another kingdom. It's a rival kingdom that um, gives us its own set of values and principles and tries to instill those into us. Now, if, if at this point you're feeling like, I don't really care about cell phones, I don't use cell phones, I don't own a cell phone, that's totally fine. But what I want us to see, this is just a case study, what I want us to see is that in the regular habits of our life, embedded into them, can be worship, right? So if you don't use a cell phone, fine. Just track with the logic here because in our habits, we can um, unwittingly be participating in worship because our heart is drawn uh, to things that our mind has not quite caught up with. So let's look at some of the promises and values that I think this kingdom is offering us. There's, there's four that I've listed here. So first, it's a kingdom that promises infinite information. So there's almost... Six million articles on Wikipedia in the English language. There's 25 million books in Google's library. In fact, they aimed to catalog 110 million 
which is thought to be all of the books ever, but they ran into a few copyright laws, obviously, and got slowed down. Um, there's 24-7 news. You can get connected to news groups and people throughout the world all the time. You can get push notifications. It's endless. Information is everywhere. Second, it's a kingdom that promises endless entertainment. So nearly every movie, song, piece of art, you can find with a couple clicks, a couple searches, um, not far away. This blew my mind. 300 hours of YouTube videos loaded every minute. 300 hours. And this is even more staggering. Five billion YouTube videos watched every day. Five billion, with a B, videos watched every day. Um, so there is uh, a deep desire to be entertained here. Third, it's a kingdom that promises never-ending need meeting. And sorry, I really had to stick with alliteration here. Um, so never-ending need meeting. Um, Today, Amazon sells more than 606 million unique products. That's not like 606 million total products, but 606 unique products to which they have many of each. And all of those are just within a day or two of your, your front uh, doorstep. Um, if you need a ride, you can ask Uber and Lyft to help you out. Uh, if you forget your lunch, you can ask Postmates or DoorDash, um, and they will have your back, right? So there's this... Um, ability for technology to be our comfort and to be our help. And then last, it's a kingdom that promises constant connection. So Facebook has 2.37 billion users. That's about a third of the total population in the world. There's places where you can interact with people who have niche interests. I talk to people who are interested in a video game that's like 20 years old um, with fellow-minded nerds like me. But you can find anyone like you out there, right? Um, there's, there's connection. Um, so we can see here that um, while many of these things are good, when we hear our phones ringing or dinging or vibrating or what you, whatever you've set your phone to, what we actually hear, I think, is a rival kingdom calling us, right? This is a kingdom that's calling us into worship. It's calling us in to embrace its values, to embrace its vision, to embrace its desires, and embrace its goals. And I think if we wanted to say this in a more pointed way, we would say, when we hear our phones go off, we hear the idols of affirmation, we hear the idols of comfort, we hear the idols of entertainment, we hear the idols of knowledge calling our names and beckoning us to be a part of their kingdom. Now, I have nothing against cell phones. I want to make that uh, really clear, right? I, <laughs> I have one right here, right? Um, so maybe I am one of those millennials, one of those 90%, you know. Um, but anyways, you know, like, so this week, my sister has been in Africa. Um, I mean, she lives there, but she's graduated and sent us pictures. I've texted to the pastors and used my cell phone to read my Bible and listen to music. So um, I'm, I'm not downing on phones or anything like that. My concern is the idolatry in, in my heart and the idolatry um, that, that seems to be prevalent in our culture and in the church. Um, now, what do I mean by idolatry? I, I think Romans 1 helps explain this for us really clearly. Romans 1 tells us that idolaters are those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator so idolatry is valuing and prioritizing created things, good things even, 
over God, the creator, the ultimate thing, right? It's a reversal of priority. It's a reversal of allegiance. So the question really is not whether we um, make idols, I, I don't think. The question is what idols we are making. Many of you might think cell phones are not your thing, but I promise you the human reflex, the broken human reflex is to reach out and to worship things other than God. So the question is, what are those, those idols? Um, now, believe it or not, it's a lot harder to answer that question than we think. To answer the question, what are the idols in my life? And the reason why is because it's so much easier to see idols in other people's lives than it is to see it in our own. Um, idolatry blinds us, and in our blindness, it's difficult to spot those things. Um, so if you guys remember that study from Asherion, when they surveyed participants, they asked participants, do you think Americans are addicted to cell phones? 90% said yes. Then they asked, do you think you're addicted to your cell phones? 59% said yes. Right. So there's a disparity between those who claim that people are addicted and those who admit to being addicted themselves. And that's the nature of our heart. We're so easy um, our, our hearts are so easily and so quickly able to deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm not the idolater, my friend is, or my wife is, or my church is, or that, that other person is, but it's, it's not me. That's our, our reflex, to point out the idolatry in others. So um, with that in mind, I think there are some helpful questions that we can ask to spot idolatry in our heart, but I think we have to come to grips with the fact that um, we so quickly deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not doing it and that others are. So with these questions, um, be as sober-minded as you can. I know that's kind of hard to say because, uh, again, we can be blind to it. So it's like telling someone who's blind to see. But um, uh, ask the Spirit to reveal this to you. And then I would encourage you, ask other people who know you and are really close to you um, to answer these questions with you because it can be really illuminating. So here's three questions. First, we must ask what our habits say about the priorities in our life. So if you sat down and you watched your life, so you can kind of see yourself out of yourself, it makes it a little bit easier to identify your own heart in this way. If you sat down and watched your life day by day by day playing, what would you say your time and your priorities are based on your actions? What would, what would you say that you valued based on your actions. Proverbs 4.23 says that everything, everything, all the actions you do, flows from your heart. And if this is true, then the things that you most regularly dedicate yourselves to, with your time, with your energy, with your money, with your efforts, that's going to reveal what your heart truly values. And the challenge is, sometimes we confess with our, our mouth and even believe in our mind that we worship something, but then when we reflect on our habits and what we give ourselves to, there often is a disparity. I mean, I've been thinking about this myself all this week, and I'm like, man, this is tough. Um, you know, one of the things, if you own an iPhone, you can look at how much time you spend um, with the different apps, and I found that I listen to podcasts a lot more than I read my Bible, for instance. Um, now, granted, I do listen to podcasts about the Bible, um, but... <laughs> But that's, you know, for me, it was really illuminating because I would have told you, absolutely, I read the Bible more than I listen to podcasts. Um, so we, we have to ask um, this question of ourselves soberly and, and uh, really question our priorities as we regularly 
uh, live our, our life and take action. Second, we must ask how committed we are to our habits. So one of the easiest ways to know if you idolize something is to ask, what would happen if I didn't have this thing or this habit? And these are really tough questions, right? Um, what would happen if you're no longer physically able to be intimate with your spouse? What would happen if you were um, suddenly become injured and you were no longer to w- able to weightlift or run or bike or do whatever it is that you do, maybe play the guitar anymore? What would happen if you were no longer able to pursue your career or use your gifts or pursue the things that you value? What would happen if someone close to you was taken away from you? What would happen? Would you choose to worship God or would you not? And if the answer is no, then your worship of God is tied up in all of these created things. And the answer is that that is idolatry. So this is the, the premise behind the book of Job, if you're familiar with it. Um, so in the book of Job, Satan goes to God and Satan tells God, hey, you know your servant Job? He doesn't love you. He loves the things that you give him. Right, so the, the challenge there, Satan is saying that Job is an idolater, that if those things were taken away from Job, that Job would no longer respond and worship to God. And so what do they do? God doesn't just say, sure, um, I think you're wrong, Satan. Um, he says, prove it. Take away everything, and you will see that Job is not an idolater. He loves God more than anything. You see that uh, in Job's response, right? He says, Um, The Lord gives and takes away, and then he responds in worship. Um, So when we ask um, what our um, habits are, and then we ask how connected we are to those habits, how valuable those habits are to us, I think we start to get a a little bit of a better picture of the things that we value in worship. And then this is the last thing. Third, we must ask what our habits promise us. So we spoke about this in detail Um, A bit earlier with cell phones, here's just another example of something that seems kind of innocuous but um, actually can um, really have worship underneath it. So I get coffee every single day. I usually go to Starbucks. Um, Most of us statistically drink coffee here um, every day. Now, that seems like just a normal mundane thing, but here's the thing. For me, I don't think coffee is always just coffee, right? I think underneath that, there's actually a promise. Because we live in a culture that says, if you're productive, if you get more done, if you get to more meetings, if you grade more papers, whatever it is, then you're more valuable, right? Um, And so I love coffee. It's great. But I think wrapped up in that is a promise, actually, oftentimes, that I'm believing, that I'm chugging coffee before work because there's something underneath that. It just happens to be wrapped up in a a venti iced coffee with light half and half and light sweetener, right? But um, don't you judge me. (laughs) But, you know, it's wrapped up in in something cute. Um, In fact, it's funny, this is kind of a tangent, but Starbucks used to have um, something really enlightening. Uh, There was a slogan at one time that said something like, obey your morning ritual, right? So that says something. They they know what they're doing with their, their marketing. Um, okay, so those are the habits, right? Um, we've kind of learned that they can reveal what we worship. But here is something more intriguing. This line of thought in the scriptures continues on. Um, so it turns out that not only 
Um, do our habits reveal what we worship? But they actually transform us into the things that we worship. And this is actually really frightening. Um, so this is our second point if you're, you're following along. We become what we worship. So listen to what scholar G.K. Beale says in his book, We Become What We Worship. People will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like him. If they are committed to something other than God, they will become like that thing, always spiritually inanimate and empty like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they have committed themselves. This is intuitive to us, right? Um, So for example, we know that if we regularly worship God, we begin to bear his fruit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Did I get that right, Pastor Matt? I think you said that the other day. Um, (laughs) But what happens if, let's say we worship other people's um, impressions of us or or their sentiment towards us. Well, it turns out that we become like what they expect of us. What happens if we worship things like power or wealth? Well, it turns out that we begin to trample on other people who are weak and poor. See, we are directly impacted by the things that we worship. It shapes our values and behaviors, and we become like them. Now, not only is this intuitive, though, I, I think it's biblical, which is why I'm telling you. Um, so we're going to kind of just walk through a few, few texts to show you why this is the case. And uh, I just want to give a shout-out to G.K. Beale because as I was kind of reviewing some of this stuff, he, he really helped me out. So let's start with Matthew 17. Um, Matthew 17, Jesus is leading Peter and James and John up to the top of a mountain. And if you're familiar with biblical imagery... And ancient Near East imagery, being on the mountain is really good. It means something significant is going to happen, right? We have the giving of the law on top of a mountain. We have Jerusalem being established on a hill. Um, so this is significant. So Matthew's trying to, trying to draw our attention to this. So here's what happens. They go up on a mountain with Jesus, and then the text says this. There Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Can you imagine that? So we have Jesus standing before his disciples, radiating the full glory of God. Right? That would be such an overwhelming thing, such a transformative thing, that to see Jesus like that, you would never be the same. And the reality is that when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus, they never were the same, right? They went out and they gave their lives to Jesus. And it was so transformative that you even see it in Peter's writings many decades later. He includes this as something significant, seeing the glory of God radiating from Jesus. See, this is what I want for us as a church. I want us to see Jesus in his glory, to experience him and to become more like him. That's the whole goal of this sermon series here. And not only is this what I want for us, um, but this is what Scripture holds out for us. So we see in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, 
who is the Spirit. So notice that word transform there. You guys can see that underlined. Underneath that word is a Greek word. It's called metamorpho. It means metamorphosis. We are kind of familiar with that term. That's the same one used there that's also used underneath that word transfigured. Same word. It's only used one other place other than these two here. And so what I think Paul is doing is really drawing a connection between the glory of Christ revealed in his transfiguration and the transformation that happens in us when we gaze upon his glory and are transformed, right? This is our calling as a church, to regularly um, meet with Jesus in our life, to lay our life down for him, to encounter him, to be transformed by him, and to radiate his glory through us. And this is such an awesome calling, to be called into that progressive transformation. Now, if this is true about following Jesus and worshiping Jesus, what about idolatry? So the same transformative principle that we become what we worship is held out to be true in Scripture as well. Um, Psalm 115 says this about idolatry. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Did you guys catch that? Those who make idols and trust in them become senseless and empty and vain like the idols they worship. They are transformed into their lifeless idols. So we see this truth in Scripture. As we worship God, as we gaze upon his beauty and his glory, we are transformed into his image, and we ourselves reflect him to others. But if we worship idols, then our hearts become hardened, right? We become lifeless. We begin to diminish the glory of God in us. We stop reflecting his nature and his character and his image. So at this point, you might be kind of feeling a little overwhelmed, right? This is a little weighty. Um, And not only that, but if you're kind of following the logic, there's also a dilemma here, right? Um, And that dilemma is that if my habits reveal that I truly worship idols and my idolatry progressively hardens my heart and leads me to more idolatry, then how do I get out of that? How do you get out of that? How do we get out of our idolatry? We can't change our habits because our heart is hard. We'll ultimately revert to our hard-heartedness. We need something new. We need need a new heart. And so this is our our third point uh, here. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, um, this was Israel's story, right? Israel constantly fell into idolatry. So we see in Exodus, right when they make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, they fall down and and bow before a golden calf. In Numbers, just the next book over, um, the people are out in the wilderness, and um, the, the pagans are throwing a barbecue, and the people go to that and worship an idol called the Baal of Peor. 
And it just continues on from there, right? We read in Kings and Chronicles that there are Baals and Ashtoreths set up throughout all of the land. And then it gets so excessive that the kings themselves start sacrificing their own children to these gods, the god of Molech. Um, so this is um, a, a progressive thing that we see here in, in Israel's history. It's because of this idolatry that God ultimately comes and he sends Israel into exile and captivities, and destruction. And not only that, but the spiritual state of Israel becomes worse and worse and worse to the point that they can no longer hear God or respond to God. This is what God says about his people, Israel, in Isaiah 42. But those who trust in idols and say to molted images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Listen, you deaf, and he's talking to Israel here. And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant Israel? Or deaf like the messenger I am sending? Who is blind like my covenant partner Israel? Or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things you do not observe, though your ears are open, you hear nothing. See, Israel had been given so much over to their idolatries, that their heart became so hard and impenitent that they can no longer hear God. Seeing they did not see, hearing they did not hear, lest they turn and be saved by God. And here's the part that blows my mind. When you read this and you look at the other scriptures, you realize Israel deserved to be destroyed, right? They deserved to be discarded like the idols that they worshipped. They had become worthless like their idols. And yet... God doesn't fully destroy them, right? He relents. And what does he do? He makes this promise. We see it all over um, the prophets, but it's especially clear here for us in Ezekiel. It says, I will also sprinkle clear water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. What grace is that, right? God have, should have responded by destroying Israel, and what Israel could not do for themselves, namely respond to God in worship and obedience, God does for them by giving them new hearts. That's such an amazing work that he promises Israel. And so as we follow along through the history of Israel, we see that that comes together in Christ. And not only is it for the Israelites, but it's now extended to all Gentiles. So this is a promise for us. We see this here in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, it's only when we're in Christ, it's only when we have been given a new heart and begin to be formed to Jesus' image that our habits begin to reflect that. And the danger is, if you try to change your habits without experiencing the renewal of Christ, then those habits will come to enslave you. So we need a new heart and the the great thing is that God 
promises that he will. So this brings us to our last point. I know we've been going a little bit long here. So our last point is that we need new habits. So if we as a church believe in the gospel, and if we have been made new in Christ, the question is, now how do we regularly place ourselves in a position where we can fix our eyes on Jesus' glory? There's a lot of talk in our culture about how this uh, is done. I think one of the answers lies in Colossians 3. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this kind of begs the the question, what are the practices of the new self? I think there's kind of a stylistic thing happening in the Greek where practices kind of falls out, so you're supposed to ask, where'd the practices for the new self go, right? Um, So we're supposed to draw ourselves to that and give our attention to that. So the practices of the new self are those practices in Scripture which expose us to the person and grace of Christ so that we grow in the character of Christ. So these are those that are listed in Scripture that expose us to the person and the grace of Christ so that we grow in the character of Christ. So again, historically, we've had lots of names for this. I already mentioned that, spiritual disciplines practices, means of grace. Um, Now, we are going to use this term habits of grace um, primarily. And the reason why is um, that I I think there's a lot of helpful theology in this phrase. So we're going to break that down, and then we'll be done. So let's break it down into two parts. First, we'll do habits, and then grace. So where do these habits come from? Well, these habits are the practices that are given to us by God, right? They're derived from Scripture, and they've been vetted throughout the history of the church and have been proven to be those things that cause the church to encounter Jesus and to be transformed by him. Now, there's lots of lists, lots of ways to organize these, but these are the ones that we're going to be going through for the next three or four months. So it's kind of a lengthy list, but we have Scripture study there, we have scripture meditation, we have prayer, we have fasting, we have stewardship, generosity, service, confession, preaching and singing, guidance and discipleship, submission, celebration, rest, and evangelism. So uh, you guys can see we have a, a long summer ahead of us, right? A lot of stuff to, <laughs> a lot of stuff to tackle, right? Um, now, one thing that might be crossing your mind right now is when you see this list, you might think, yeah, but I connect to God when I surf or when I run or when I garden. Um, but here's the deal. So we've selected these specifically because they are drawn out from Scripture and um, given to us by God as ways that we can meet and encounter him. So what that means is there may be lots of other practices that are beneficial, but they're not necessary. Otherwise, God would have told us them in in scripture. And so the important thing is to not neglect these for something that may be beneficial, but to prioritize these because these are given to us in the word of God. And then last, what about the grace part? So why are we calling this the habits of of grace? So here we're trying to emphasize um, something that might not be readily apparent in the term 
spiritual disciplines or, or practices. Now, we're going to be using those terms. Um, I mean, they've been historically used, and there's nothing inherently wrong with them. But one thing we want to do is draw out something that might not be readily apparent in those terms, and that is that um, we, as people, have a tendency of turning habits into ultimate things, right? Another way of saying that is these habits can easily be turned back into idolatry. Um, now, what happens is if we make these habits the ultimate thing, then we start to use them to manipulate other people, right? See, if I do these practices or these habits really well, then God has to respond to my prayers. God has to give me the things I ask for. God has to work through me in this way. Or if I master these things, then I expect other people to, to honor me and to respect me because of my mastery of them, right? Um, now, the truth is that if we master these things, um, that there is no guarantee that we will experience Christ, right? The reason why is because it all comes down to our motivation, right? We may memorize the whole Bible. We might pray ceaselessly. We might give everything that we have, but if we pursue these things without pursuing them for experiencing Christ and to know him, then we have nothing, and we are actually worse off than before because we have knowledge that we are using um, for idolatry. So I love how Donald uh, Whitney, he's a, a professor who's written a number of books on spiritual disciplines, describes this. He says this, and he's going to use the language of spiritual disciplines, but he is very mindful of this reality. Think of the spiritual disciplines as ways by which we can spiritually place ourselves in the path of God's grace and seek him. Much like Zacchaeus placed himself physically in Jesus' path and sought him, the Lord by his spirit still travels down certain paths, paths that he has ordained and revealed in scripture. I love that. Right? These are the paths that Jesus walks down that he has promised that he will meet us in. We call these paths the spiritual disciplines. And if we will place ourselves on these paths and look for him there by faith, we can expect to encounter him. For instance, when we come to the Bible or we engage in any of the biblical disciplines, looking by faith to God through them, we can anticipate experiencing God. And in the course of time, we too will be transformed by him from one level of Christ-likeness to another. So again, by means of these Bible-based practices, we consciously place ourselves before God in anticipation of enjoying his presence and receiving his transforming grace. This is what it's all about. This is why we're doing this sermon series, right? We want to enter into the season of pursuing Christ through the habits, not so that we can master them, so that we can be perfect at them or impress others or have experiences, but so that we can know Christ and his grace and his person, right? So when we read our scriptures, we are reading them to hear Christ's voice. Um, when we are reflecting on the scriptures, we are reflecting on them to have his mind, right? We want to sense the closeness of Christ as we speak to him in prayer, and we want to feast on Christ as we are fasting, and we want to experience his generosity as we give to others. 
we want to have a clear conscience made clean by his blood as we confess to him. And the list goes on and on. It's all about Jesus and encountering him. And this is our, our goal for the summer. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, would you pray with me?